When Maswa Yasui arrived in Hood River, Oregon, he had the same goals that a lot of us have. Find work, earn a living, start a family, make it your home. The year was 1908. What Maswa didn't plan on was that his story would also include FBI spying, false accusations, a divided family, unexpected death, and the mass incarceration of more than 100,000 people. Removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities. They are as different from ourselves as any people on this planet. He was a leader, but he was under pressure to do things that is just impossible to do. What started as a simple immigrant story turned into a national narrative, one still relevant more than a century later. You're listening to Here in the Gorge, stories that will change your sense of place. I'm Sarah Fox, and this episode is called Almost Home. There's a place in Oregon where Mount Hood runs down to the Columbia River, and the basin in between is full of farms, orchards, vineyards, and people that depend on the actual dirt beneath their feet. It's a place called the Hood River Valley, and in many ways, it's just about as far as you can get from here. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States and Mrs. Michelle Obama. Everybody have a seat. Well, welcome to the White House, everybody. Uh, today, we celebrate some extraordinary people. It's November 24th, 2015. On a small stage in a packed room, sit two rows of people behind the president. You might recognize some of them. There's Willie Mays, not far from James Taylor. And up in the second row is Steven Spielberg, next to Barbara Streisand. They're a diverse group of individuals, but on this day, they all have one thing in common. As a nation. And we offer them our highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. The Presidential Medal of Freedom. This is it. There is no greater honor our country can give to a civilian than this award. Which is why it feels like you're taking a walk down America's memory lane when you look at past winners. Maya Angelou, John Wayne, Yogi Berra, Martin Luther King Jr., Helen Keller, Harvey Milk. And on that day in November 2015, the path led right to the small town of Hood River. From the fruit farms of Oregon to the hallowed halls of the Supreme Court, Minoru Yasui devoted his life to fighting for basic human rights and the fair... Minoru Yasui. A lot of people call him Min. Here he is in his own words. If you begin to erode the liberties and freedom and rights of the individual, then you are indeed jeopardizing the safety of our whole nation. Min died in 1986. So his daughter Lori is at the White House to accept the award on his behalf. Her father is the first Oregonian to ever receive the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And he was born and raised right here in Hood River. Which is why I just assumed this story would be about men. About a small town boy turned national hero. But the more I learned, the more I understood it wasn't that simple. Hood River was more than just a small town backdrop. It played a role itself 
both good and bad. And I realized that this story should actually start with Min's father, Masuo. So I needed to find someone who could tell me more. Someone who had known Min, known his father, and known this place. Yeah, I'm the baby boy. How old are you now? I'm going to be, I'm 91. I'm going to be 92 this December. <laughs> That's Homer Yasui, Min's youngest brother. Oh, there were, you know there were nine kids. Uh, Min was born in October 19, 1916. Nine Yasui children, all born right here in the Columbia Gorge. And most born in the family's home on 3rd Street in Hood River. Homer lives in Seattle now, but he still clearly remembers the valley where he was raised. Well, going up uh, for me, of course, this is not pure nostalgia now. Do they still have the pipeline there? The old wood? The wooden pipeline? Oh, big? Yeah. Oh, we used to walk on that for a while in the old days. There'd sometimes be a leak in that water. We'd go like that, and we'd put our hands over there. If you, if you fell off of that thing, there's no way to get back up on it. By the time Homer was in middle school, the family had a spacious home on 12th and Montello, just about a mile from the Yasui Brothers store that was run by his father and uncle. They also had profitable farms, and the kids were succeeding in school. A student body president, a valedictorian, editor of the school newspaper, even Yuka, the youngest daughter, was considered the mid-Columbia Japanese Shirley Temple. And like any good success story, you want to know, how'd they do it? Where did it all begin? Which brings us to Masuo Yasui, Min and Homer's father. He's the one who made the decision to immigrate from Japan to Oregon, long before he had a wife and children. And like a lot of us, he fell in love with the Columbia Gorge. He did stay in Hood River in 1907, and he saw that, and he see the rushing waters and a beautiful snow-capped mountain and reminded him so much of Japan where he came from. So he said, this is where I want to stay. Masuo became a well-respected businessman and local leader. By all measures, Masuo had achieved the American dream and was an ideal citizen, which is what made it so hard to reconcile what Homer told me next. Okay, well, my father actually was arrested on uh, December 12th by the FBI. That day, the FBI took Homer and Min's father from their house. Masuo was never convicted of anything. But he also never returned to live in Hood River. Clearly, a lot had happened in this small town. So I wondered what Homer remembered of growing up in the Columbia Gorge. The thing that always gladdened my heart when we come to Mitchell Point, and we're going through the Mitchell Point Tunnel. It was carved out of solid basalt rock, and they had windows that overlooked the Columbia River. And you know, in those days, it took over two hours to get from Portland to Hood River because it's the winding old scenic road, and they didn't have the yellow stripe to separate the right side from the left side. So it was kind of scary, you know, because my father was a terrible driver. Sometimes he'd be on the wrong side of the road. But that's where it gladdened my heart, where Mitchell Point, we're almost home. The Hood River Valley is a grower's paradise. The old orchards live on a steady diet of mountaintop water and fertile volcanic soil. 
but they haven't always been here. And the valley looked a lot different when Masuo first arrived. There was a big lumbering industry there, Oregon Lumber Company. And so they were chopping down all the trees, and then they had land that was, you know, just stump land. So they hired Japanese laborers to clear the land, take, dig out the stump, dynamite them, burn them, pull them up, whatever. And so the valley was quickly coming into its own, and it needed cheap labor to keep up with the growth. Chinese workers had filled the role, but that source dried up when the government decided to prohibit their immigration. For many in Japan, the timing was perfect. The economy there was struggling, and for a lot of Japanese, finding temporary work in the U.S. was a way to survive the tough times. So Japanese presence in Hood River was from around nine, approximately 1900 onward. And there were lots of them. And they'd come here for a little while, three years, four years. And they'd send the money back home, and then eventually after they made their pile, they'd go home. In the Hood River Valley, the need for labor was so great that many local farmers actively sought out Japanese workers, which meant that, with the exception of Portland, there were more Japanese living in Hood River than in any other city in the state. But my father saw that, you know, the opportunity, 400 single Japanese laborers, then they're going to crave Japanese food, Japanese clothing, Japanese pictures, and all that. So he said, wrote this letter to Taizuro and Uncle Renji in Montana, said, hey, Let's go to Hood River and open up our own little store. The first Yasui store was in a quaint cottage located on 3rd and Oak, right in the heart of downtown Hood River. It had a small covered porch and a huge front window. The building no longer exists, but the sign in front once read, Yasui Brothers Company, all kinds of Japanese goods. When it came time to move the store to a new building, the brothers didn't have to go very far. The next Yasui store was on the corner of First and Oak. And technically, the original building also no longer exists. The restaurant Salilo was built in its place. But you'll notice that the front door of the new building opens directly to the corner of the block. That unique location is the same as it was when the Yasuis were there. The store had one final location, a red brick building built specifically for the Yasuis and it still stands. Right next to Salilo is Ground Coffee Shop, and that was the last location of the Yasui Brothers store. And it's the one that Homer remembers best. It's like a, a shotgun house. And on each side there be tiers of knickknacks from the east, maybe suitcases on this side. You go further back, there'd be games, dices, cars, kimonos, shoes even. Garters, maybe, pencil, pen, gum, candy, soda pop, bread. She and me, that's my next older brother. We'd be inventorying, he'd be up on a ladder, and he'd be t telling me what it was and how much it was and how many it was. And I'd wrote down in the little brown ledger book. We had hundreds of them. We wrote them by hand. Hey, my brother looked at us and said, Oh, jack paper strings. I said, jack paper strings? <laughs> Well, it's in Japanese it's called Mizuhiki. It's it's it is Japanese paper strings, but we didn't know the word for Mizuhiki, and, and those are examples. And then he he'd be because selling. you were speaking English or? Oh, he was speaking English because we couldn't read Japanese. It was written in Japanese, but we, we neither one of us could read it. Maybe they couldn't read Japanese like their father Masuo, who was fluent in Japanese and English. But the Yasui children had one thing their father did not. 
All nine were born in Oregon, and so all nine were American citizens. He desperately, desperately wanted to be a full-fledged American. I mean, no doubt in my mind about it. But Maswell couldn't become an American citizen. No Asian immigrant could, according to federal law. Despite this, Maswell still seemed fully committed to his new home. He, he was very strong-headed about things like that. And then he, even his kids, you know, even though he knew he couldn't become citizen, he'd tell us that uh, we got to go to school and be good citizen, obey the law and all that. Maswell continued to work and behave like the ideal citizen, even when times were tough, of which there'd be many. Well, so he got a job to supplement their income, and he worked for the uh, First National Bank sweeping in the inside the janitorial work at night. So he'd only do it at night because it didn't look good for a businessman to be being a janitor. And he said, across the street, there was Joe Carson. Do you know who Joe Carson was? Joe Carson was the mayor of Portland, a mayor of Portland. And he was a big shot, eventually. But in those days, this is 1908, 1909, they were together doing janitorial work. And they both became... The banks that employed Joe and Masuo are gone, but the buildings aren't. It's hard to miss the giant stone pillars guarding the entrance to the old Butler Bank. And just across the street, you'll see the historic clock that reads National Bank. Homer's stories changed the way I saw the Hood River Valley. I found myself looking for evidence of the Yasui history, which is how I finally noticed something I'd somehow missed. A small plaque with a picture of Masuo. Actual physical proof that he was here a part of this place. It hangs on the brick wall of what was once the third Yusui store. The date reads 1930, and the text below calls Masuo one of Hood River's leading business people. His wire-rimmed glasses are perfectly round. His white button-up shirt looks crisp under a dark tie and suit coat. He appears stoic. And his eyes look just slightly off camera, as if he has other things on his mind. From nighttime janitor to successful businessman, there was still one piece missing. Later on, they bought a piece of land in Viento. You know where Viento is? Okay. And then a piece of land in Pine Grove, a piece of land in D, and a piece of land in Willow Flat. So Those plots of land grew into thriving farms, and Maswa was elected as the first Japanese to join the influential apple growers board. A young Homer may have been a bit less enthusiastic about the success of the farms. Willow Flat Farm, yes, and I labored on it in the summertime and weekends and all that, and it was no fun because it was work. What did you have to do on it? Well, when I was old enough to pick strawberries for one thing, and then as I got maybe 12 or so, then I had to hoe strawberries. I know everything about strawberries. They used to weevil bait them and pick them and top them and rake them and burn them and pile them up. Strawberries, I don't eat strawberries. I don't buy strawberries to this day because I worked so many years on that. And the Yusuis certainly weren't the only immigrants turning to agriculture. It wasn't long before 75% of the Japanese in Hood River were farmers. By 1940, the Hood River Valley was leading the state in fruit production, and the Japanese, despite their small population, contributed 25% of the valley's produce. But success became a liability, and Maswo was caught in the middle. He was very important, not, not only to the uh, Japanese community, but to the, uh, to the Caucasian community, because 
he was their de facto spokesperson. But looking back on the family papers and, and the stuff that my father kept and reading the newspapers, I know it was bad there. A group called the Anti-Asiatic League had formed in the valley. The Anti-Asiatic League said the Japs live like rats and they breed like rats and their homes are hovels and so on. So my dad tried to mediate the Japanese community to build up their homes, make it look more presentable, mow their lawn and prune their trees and paint their houses and things like that, to mollify the white community complaint that the Japs are like rats. There was particular concern over the amount of land owned by Japanese farmers. Some feared that the Japanese were trying to take over the place. And compared to the rest of the state, the Japanese farmers in the valley did own more land. But there was a reason for this. Local farmers, who'd been eager to have their land cleared, had traded land for labor. The immigrants had then turned that land into farms of their own. Now, as the United States faced its own economic crisis, the Japanese minority quickly became a target nationwide. So growing up, I always knew I was Japanese. For example, the little kids go, look at the little Jap boy, look at the little Jap boys. This began very early, you know, I was only maybe probably six, seven. So it was a two separate and distinct society. It was not de facto segregation, it was just was, it was traditional customary. As anti-immigrant tensions continued to rise, Oregon's governor requested a statewide investigation. It surveyed any county with a sizable population of Japanese immigrants. The results were called the Report on the Japanese Situation in Oregon. And it included a lot of what you might expect. Stats on the Japanese population, their occupations, crime rates. Turn to page 7 and you'll find the results on the Hood River Valley. It gets right to the point. The Japanese question is more acute in Hood River than in any other place in Oregon. He, he was... He was a leader, but he was under pressure to do things that it was just impossible to do. So it was hard for him. Well, do you feel like your dad, even at the end, still really wanted to be an American as much as he did at the beginning when he first came? Oh, I'm sure he did. Oh, this guy was super patriotic. After he came here, he wanted to stay here forever. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. We were playing Sandlot Bay uh, football. I saw my father come hustling up the road on, on 13th Avenue, and I never saw my father run before. He was, he was, you know, he's 50 years old, tells me to come home, and that's how I found out. Japan had bombed Pearl Harbor. It was devastating. Nearly 2,500 people were killed and over a thousand more were wounded. The U.S. quickly declared war on Japan and joined World War II. To beat the Japanese and to do the job thoroughly, we have got to understand them thoroughly. They are as different from ourselves as any people on this planet. It was very standoffish and we didn't know what the hell to do. You know, there were at that time maybe 3,000 people. We knew the sheriff and 
chief of police, and well, here all of a sudden we have, you know, we talked to had friends and played game, baseball, and all of them. Then the next day, no more. But that's the way it was. You got to remember what World War Two was like, and you you wouldn't because you weren't there. Do you feel like it changed you? I mean, did it make you? angry and standoffish? No, it's not that. I didn't feel that way. I said, oh God, they just don't understand us. So I didn't, I didn't think that this being standoffish would do you any help. I, so I would think that trying to explain, be a better citizen, I suppose, if anything. When times are tough, be a better citizen. That's certainly what Homer had seen his father do. But it still seems surprising given what Maswo got in return. Okay, well, my father actually was arrested on uh, December 12th. The FBI and the sheriff came along, which was a Friday, a few days after Pearl Harbor. My mother had his bag already packed, ready to go. There was only one bag, but uh, he was ready to go, so, and my father knew it, too. Since at least the 1930s, the U.S. government had been secretly collecting information on immigrants. They wanted a list of anyone who might be potentially dangerous. Japanese businessmen, religious leaders, even teachers, were included on what became known as the ABC list. It ranked people based on their perceived threat and identified who to arrest first should the U.S. join the war. When Pearl Harbor was bombed, the federal government was ready, and Maswo, known to many as Matt, was on the list. After my father got arrested by the FBI and the sheriff, this is well, here we all trusted Matt Isui because he's on the board of directors and, and he was a member of the Rotary and a good friend of all of us. And here, all the time, he was sitting in his office after midnight radio and taking orders from Tokyo. The damn guy was a spy. And what did you know as a kid? You came home from school. Yeah, he's gone. So where's dad? And mom says, I don't know. They took him away. Well, my father was taken to Multnomah County Jail. So he was in Portland. Then from Portland to Fort Missoula, Montana. Maswa was considered a leader in the community. So it was no surprise that he was one of the first to be arrested. But it wasn't until he reached Montana that he'd finally have a hearing. Maswa was not allowed to be represented by a lawyer. But his son, Min, a young attorney at that point, was there to observe. The proceeding was called a loyalty hearing, and it focused largely on drawings that had been found at the Yasui home. They showed the Panama Canal, including details of how the locks worked. Maswo didn't know for sure, but it appeared the drawings were part of his children's schoolwork, which seemed like an odd topic for a legal proceeding, until Maswo was asked, didn't you have these maps and diagrams? so you could direct the blowing up of the canal locks? Now he understood. Masuo repeatedly denied the accusation, but to no avail. Finally, he was asked to prove that he did not intend to damage the Panama Canal. Of course, this was impossible. The children's drawings, along with an award from the Japanese government, were enough to deem Masuo, quote, potentially dangerous to the public peace and safety of the United States. So my father went to Fort Sill, then he was transferred to Camp Livingston and transferred to Santa Fe, where he spent the rest of the time until January 46, five months after the war ended. But no charges were ever brought against Maswo, 
and he never received a formal trial. In Hood River, the Yasui store was immediately shut down. Months later, when it was allowed to briefly open, there was a notice on the door. It read, For the past 30 years, we have been in business in Hood River catering to your needs, and we are clearing out our stock at reasonable prices. The mood feels surprisingly upbeat. But the final line of the notice has an unexpected irony for the Japanese in the valley. In all caps, it reads, We have what others haven't. More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. Their evacuation did not imply individual disloyalty, but was ordered to reduce a military hazard at a time when danger of invasion was great. Two-thirds of the evacuees are American citizens by right of birth. The rest are their Japanese-born parents and grandparents. President Roosevelt had signed Executive Order 9066. The order allowed for parts of the United States to be deemed military zones. And in the name of national security, anyone in these zones could be classified as an enemy alien and then forcibly removed from their homes, even American citizens like Homer and his siblings. Have you seen that picture? I'm in that picture. My sister's in that picture. My mother's in that picture. My sister-in-law's in that picture. It's, it's a panoramic photograph of the day we were evacuated from Hood River, May 13. Neither the Army nor the War Relocation Authority relished the idea of taking men, women, and children from their homes, their shops, and their farms. So the military and civilian agencies alike determined to do the job as a democracy should with real consideration for the people involved. Maybe a month before the evacuation, we got notice that we were going to have to go. So, Did someone tell you or did you get a No, letter? no, they, they, they put notices on the, on the telephone posts, and public notices. I think they even put it in newspaper. Government agencies helped in a hundred ways. They helped the evacuees find tenants for their farms. They helped businessmen lease, sell, or store their property. Now, this aid was financed by the government, but quick disposal of property often involved financial sacrifice for the evacuees. There was a period of time when you could make leases and so on, but it was only about a month or so, and you know, for land that's worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, it's hard to make a lease that period of time, or even find a renter. Families needed to quickly sell, store, or give away everything that they owned. Their homes, farms, businesses, their pets. In just a matter of weeks or even days, Entire lives had to be put on hold. You also have to report to the civilian exclusion station. In our case, it was the, the American Legion Post Building. So we had to go there and to get our fam what so-called family number. Every person got a family number. Then it was time to leave. In Hood River, Homer and his family boarded what were called evacuation trains. You could take one suitcase. That's it. Do you remember what you packed in your suitcase? Well, I, I remember I had my baseball mitt and my baseball hat. 
<laughs> That's all I can remember, though. But I do remember my best friend in high school, there was a guy named Gerald Fish Foster, was down there, and I thought to myself, oh, God, Fish is going to get in trouble because he's cutting class. This is this is 10 o'clock in the morning. This is, you're supposed to be in school by 8-something, whatever, wasn't he? He's cutting class to see me off. The other thing that kind of stupid about this whole thing is that we were all dressed to the nines. The, the men wore hats and ties and jackets, and women wore nice dresses and hats. They were all formally dressed, like you're going to a party or something. And I don't know why we did that way, but we did. I guess it, <laughs> make the best of whatever you can. But the, you look at the picture and say, my God, these people don't look like they're going to camp. Internees did not know where they were going or how long they'd be gone. The first stop was what the government called assembly centers. These were places that could immediately handle thousands of people. Livestock stables, racetracks, and fairgrounds fit the bill. Animals could be cleared out, and a family like the Yasuis, who'd slept in a home the night prior, might now find themselves sleeping together in a horse stall. They are not prisoners. They are not internees. They are merely dislocated people, the unwounded casualties of war. Next, they went to what were called relocation centers, or internment camps. The housing was barrack-style, multiple people to each small room. There was communal eating, shared toilets, and showers. More than 100,000 people lived in these camps for the duration of the war, long enough to establish stores, roads, schools, even courts and judges. 6,000 babies were born in the camps, and two-thirds of the internees were American citizens. The entire community, bounded by a wire fence and guarded by military police, symbols of the military nature of the evacuation. At the end of the war, the camps closed and internees could return to their homes. In Hood River, a group of citizens formed the League for Liberty and Justice. They greeted the Japanese and Japanese-Americans at the train station and tried to help them reestablish in the valley after years away from their homes. But Hood River proved to be unwelcoming. Across Oregon, internees returned to their hometowns at a rate of 70%. In Hood River, the number was just 40%. Maswo and his wife chose not to return. But he couldn't go back. I wouldn't go back either. It hurt that bad. So when you think of it now? Well, it's different now. The people have changed and they understand a little bit more. But when I think of all the people, particularly who signed the petition, you know about that petition? A prominent Hood River resident paid for a series of full-page ads in the local paper. They included letters like this one. Japs are not wanted in Hood River. You Japs listed on this page have been told by some that you would be welcomed back in Hood River. This is not true. Look over the list and you will probably find neighbors whom you thought might welcome you back. If you do not find their names this week, keep watching this page from week to week, and I think you will eventually find their names. The ads ran for three months and were signed by nearly 2,000 residents, 40 times the number who joined the League of Justice. 
Some of them my friend, were my friends. I said, why in the world would they do that? Write something like that. Sign a petition saying you don't want the damn Japs to come back. That was so hurtful. And to this day, it still hurts me when I see something. Hey, these are my teachers. They did that. So that, that made me feel real bad. Stores placed signs in their windows that read, No Japs Allowed. The Hood River Mayor publicly declared that we must let the Japanese know they're not welcome here. The conflict in Hood River soon became national news when the local American Legion removed 16 names from a veteran's honor roll. All the names were of American servicemen, and all of them were of Japanese ancestry. Papers across the country focused in on the small Oregon town. Headlines read, Hood River's Blunder, Not So American, and Dirty Work in Hood River. The town became known as one of the most anti-Japanese places in the country. But to many in the valley, the notoriety felt unfair. This was a local situation. It was simply about the right to protect the place they loved. A letter to the paper tried to explain. Our valley is only about eight miles wide and 20 miles long. We consider it the most beautiful valley in the world. Can any good American blame us for wanting to preserve it for our posterity? The letter ended with a poem. Hood River, golden valley in the hills. Who is to possess its acres and its rills? A horde of aliens from across the sea? Or shall it be a paradise for you and me? Masuo had spent most of his life in Hood River. But it was time to make his home someplace else. He stayed in Denver for a few months. I don't know. Was my, my mother was there at that time, too. And then they came back to Portland and bought a home on 52nd Avenue in Portland, southeast Portland. But eventually, well, you know the story. My father committed suicide. In Portland, just like he had in Hood River, Maswo became a well-respected part of the community. He owned two apartment buildings and was treasurer for the Japanese Methodist Church. It seemed like he'd been able to move on. But Homer saw things start to change. My father was very meticulous and very, very organized. He wrote things down all the time, but he didn't in his treasury book, and he knew that the audit was coming up for, his, uh, uh, for the church's treasury, and his books didn't balance. So he worried and fretted about that. So many times after I got through work at my, my residency training, I'd go to his house in the, in the evening. He had an old Burroughs uh, adding machine, hand crank type of adding machine. We'd do the figure, do the numbers, and say, Dad, this doesn't add up. It, it, it won't balance regardless of what you do. Don't you have papers or receipts or books? And he says, no, I, I know people would come up to me and they'd give me $10, say, this is for my dues, or this is for flowers or something. And, and he'd fail to write it down in books. We'd worked on this, not every night, but for several months, periodically over the months. 
he got he got paranoid. He got paranoid to the fact that to the point that when I'd come over sometimes at night to help him with his books, the lights wouldn't be on. I go, God, there's nobody home. So I'd knock on the door. My mother let me in. I said, Mom, and this is in Japanese. Why do you do this sort of thing? He says, well, he won't let me turn the lights on. So I'd go in there, and my father would be literally cowering in the hallway between the bedroom and the living room. And I said, what are you doing here, Dad? And he said, shh, shh, don't turn the lights on. Go, be, be quiet, be quiet. Sheriff going to come after me. Because he, what he was doing is reliving the time when he was, was picked up by the sheriff in Hood River, and he was thinking that he was going to be taken again back to jail, another four years of imprisonment for something that just peanuts, you know. It wasn't a matter of the amount of money. It was the fact that he couldn't bounce his books and he felt wrong and he, he thought that his honor was impugned and because of that, he was going to be put in prison again for something he couldn't help. Did he ever talk to you guys about what it was like when he was in jail? Yes, but it was very misleading because he always wrote very cheerful letters and says, I am doing fine, don't worry about it. He worried more about us and says, do well in school, listen to mama, take care of your sister. So he, he didn't harp about, about that at all. One day my mother called me on the phone frantically and she says, oh, mama, come, come home, Quit. your father killed himself. So I drive up there, and my God, my mother had cut him down. He'd hanged himself with the sash that my mother had made for him. He'd hung himself, and my mother cut him down with a knife, and she cut her hand, and I remember that. And, and oh, man, oh, man, that poor man, what he must have suffered. So that's why he killed himself. He thought he was going to go to jail again. You can never repay the debts you owe to your grandfather, grandmother, parents, but you at least uh, try to justify their sacrifices by doing something good. So we come back to Min Yasui, Masuo's son. Born and raised in Hood River, and then on to receive the highest civilian honor in our country, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. Yet despite what Japanese Americans endured, suspicion, hostility, forced removal, internment, men never stopped believing in the promise of his country. He never stopped fighting for equality and justice for all. Min believed that Executive Order 9066, which had led to the internment camps, was unconstitutional. And he decided that someone needed to challenge it. That someone ended up being Min. On March 28, 1942, while his father Masuo was in jail, Min deliberately broke a curfew imposed on Japanese Americans. He was arrested stripped of his citizenship, and ultimately spent nine months in solitary confinement. I came out of the county jail in Portland, Oregon with handcuffs on my wrists, with leg shackles on my ankles. I couldn't have been a more miserable specimen of humanity that you could possibly think of. I was a enemy alien according to the decision in the United States District Court, one of the hated minorities. 
Min's case went all the way to the Supreme Court. They ruled that he was indeed a U.S. citizen by right of birth. But when it came to Executive Order 9066, the Supreme Court disagreed with Min. The court ruled that the government does have the authority to restrict the lives of civilian citizens during wartime. Executive Order 9066 was ruled constitutional, a judgment that still stands to this day. The World War II internment camps are the largest mass incarceration in U.S. history. No person of Japanese ancestry was ever charged with an act of espionage or sabotage. The testimony of Min and hundreds of others eventually led to a formal governmental apology and redress payments. And President Reagan signed into law the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which called the Japanese internment, quote, a grave injustice based on race prejudice, war hysteria, and a failure of political leadership. But Min was like his father Masuo. They both seemed to see the good in a place, despite its imperfections. I think that there's no other country that would recognize errors in the past, would try to make efforts to redress those errors. Secondly, I believe that the judicial system that we have in this country, faulty though it may be, gives the best hope of rectifying that which was done. And for Min's father, things were finally made right. Just five years before Maswa's death, the same judge who had once sentenced Min to jail now swore in Maswa Yasui as an American citizen. I keep remembering what my dad kept saying, that, you know, you're on this earth, planet Earth, to make it a little bit better for your having been here. Both Min and his father Maswa are buried in Hood River. And in 2017, a large legacy stone was placed in downtown Hood River. It's carved with the Yasui family crest and includes quotes from both Min and his father. And finally, this is my country. I come from the Hood River Valley and it's a beautiful place. I was nurtured by the soil. I know what the summer sun is, the summer rains, and this is, this is my home. And certainly having that kind of a feeling, I want to make this, our country, the best in the world. Special thanks to Travel Oregon, who helped fund and launch this season's Here in the Gorge podcast. And to our sponsors, Portland Spirit Cruises and Events, Mount Adams Chamber of Commerce, Columbia Gorge Discovery Center, Bridgeside and Riverside Restaurants, Mary Hill Museum of Art, and Wet Planet Whitewater. To the Yasui family, and especially Homer, thank you for sharing your time and stories. Technical and editorial support came from Kelsey Alzheimer and Colin Fogarty. And all the pieces come together thanks to the hard work of Lloyd Decay and Amanda Lawrence. This episode includes music from Blue Dot Sessions, Kai Ingle, and Poddington Bear. Mm-hmm.
We've also included part of an interview with Minoru Yasui from the Stephen Okazaki collection of Densho.org. The Here in the Gorge podcast is a project of the nonprofit Gorge Owned. Members of Gorge Owned contribute every day to our sense of this place. So thank you. If you like what you hear, find out more at hereinthegorge.com, where you can also subscribe to the podcast for free. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Sarah Fox, and we're here in the Gorge. Thank you.